0: Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have given us the instruction we need to know what it means to be a follower of Christ. And now tonight and this weekend, the Sabbath day, we're, as we undertake and exercise in really digging deep inside to ask those hard questions of ourselves, I pray that your spirit might touch us. And that we might come to know ourselves a little better as we seek to learn about you better. Guide us this evening by your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, the Bible says that you must become as little children if you are to see the kingdom of God. So, what is one of the characteristics of children? You've ever had that experience where you are bombarded with the endless series of why, right? Why did you do that? Well, because, well, why did you do that? Well, because, and well, why is that true? Well, because, and why, 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 why? You know, I think we, one of the evidences that we have sort of grown beyond childhood as we stop asking why. And I think we would be wise to stop sometimes to ask that question. The question, why? And you know, there's that study of the monkeys. They have a room full of monkeys. There's a banana up on a pole. Whenever a monkey climbs the pole to try to get the the banana, the researchers would spray them with water and knock them down. And as each monkey go, tries to go up the pole, it happens again and again. They get knocked down with a spray of water. And before long, as monkeys try to climb up the pole, the other monkeys would keep them from going up. And the researcher would was, was slowly, one by one, replace those monkeys who have been sprayed with monkeys who haven't been sprayed. And one by one, as the new monkey comes in, obviously, the monkey sees bananas, he's going to climb up. And then all of the other monkeys would... Yank them down and say, no, 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 don't climb up the pole. And eventually, they would replace every single monkey in that group until none of them ever had that experience of getting sprayed by the water. And what do you suppose they did whenever someone tried to climb the pole? They would grab them and pull them down. They never stopped to ask why. Why are we doing this? What's the purpose for this? And so tonight, the title of the message is actually that question Why? Why am I a Christian? And I think it's important for us to reflect on this every so often. It's a useful exercise to sort of help us be in touch with our roots and to really gain a clearer perspective. Why? Am I a Christian? Why do I live the life I do? Why do I do what everyone else does? So I'm going to throw a few questions out there, a few leading questions. And you think about it. Don't answer me. You don't have to raise your hands or anything. But suppose that there will be no heaven. Suppose that there's no heaven and there's no hell would you still choose to be a Christian? What if there was no eternal life? Would you still choose to live the same way? If there was no hope after the grave, would you still choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Think about that. That's a tough question, I think, because we know from the Bible, and the Bible is true, it's the infallible word of God, that there is a heaven. There is eternal life. There is a heaven to win and a hell to shun. We know those things, but suppose there wasn't would we still make the same choices that we have made in our lives? Would we still live this life? Think about that. As I've presented this message in different places, I've, sometimes I've just opened the floor and I've just said, so tell me, why are you a Christian? What are, what are, you know, what are your, uh, some of your reasons or your motivations of why you became a Christian? Some of the things that have been stated have been Christianity and maybe Adventism in particular answered my questions. It answered the questions that I had. Why is there suffering in the world? Why would a good God allow bad things to happen? Those kinds of things. Okay. Other people would say it gave me the strength to meet the challenges of life. Okay. That sounds good too. It gives me peace when I've I lived all my whole life In worry and stress and fretfulness. I'm sure you resonate with some of these things. Some people say, because the Lord delivered me. I'm a Christian because he saved me from addiction or a sinful life or from death row or whatever. And of course, there are, and generally these are the younger ones in the audience, they say, I'm a Christian because I want to go to heaven. Yay! I want to fly and go to the other worlds, and I mean, we say that the children say that, but I'll, come on, we all want that, don't we? So, and maybe not the Adventist so much, but there are some whose motivation is so that I won't burn, right? There are many Christians who use that as their lever, right? There's a there's a vindictive God in heaven. He loves you, but boy, you're still going to burn, and it's going to be painful. Now, here's the next question. All of these things, are they legitimate reasons to be Christians? And it's not, I'm not trying to ask a trick question. Just are they legitimate? Meaning, are they appropriate things for us to look for according to the Word of God and the Spirit of Prophecy? It's not a trick question. <laughs> does the Bible promise that those who are faithful will actually have a reward in heaven? Yes, it does. Does the Bible actually promise that if you are faithful and you accept Christ as your Savior, that you will not be burned? And of course, we're not talking about any internal burning hell, right? We're talking about an everlasting destruction that has an end. So these are not bad things. That's my point. These are still legitimate uh, motives for being Christians. In fact, the Bible actually uses many of these things. Christ even, he he extends the invitation, right? There's going to be a, a wedding feast. There is a new Jerusalem. We will have mansions in heaven. The Bible really does offer these things to entice might sound like too sensual of a word, but you understand what I'm saying. Incentives, things to awaken the desire of the human heart to yearn for the things of God. So this is, I'm not trying to lead us down a path where you're like, where is he taking us? Just honest questions. So here's here's where I start thinking a little bit more. Is there more to it than that, though? Is it possible that sometimes we can treat Christianity as a business transaction? A transaction where I give this in order to receive that. And, of course, we, as, as when we do our evangelism, we actually make that proposition. We say... What are you giving to Jesus? All you're giving him is your filthy rags, your, you know, sin-filled heart. You're giving him nothing at all. And what does he give you? He gives you everything in one fell swoop, all the riches of heaven poured out in one gift in Jesus Christ, available for you for free, right? That's the gospel appeal. But what is that actually appealing to? That sure sounds like, in a way, business. You give me something, right? Like, God, if I give you this, what do I get back? And I think that even though the Bible does, in fact, use some of this language, my son, give me thine heart, there's a purpose for that. That's not the end of the story. Sometimes God has to use the language that we can relate with as fallen human beings But he doesn't use that language because that's necessarily the end of the story. He uses that to get us in the door, so to say, so we can move us down the road. takes us where we are to move us to become what we ought to be. And so this type of Christianity strikes me as particularly dangerous if that is our only motivation, if that's where we stop. Because it's easy for us to go down two extremes. One extreme is a constant uh, uncertainty about our standing with God. If it's like this mentality of "I've got a it's this exchange program," we always wonder, "Have I given enough? Have I done enough?" Uh, Am I really going to get that reward because maybe there's something left that I haven't done? Have you ever had that feeling? Questioning, am I good enough for God? Maybe there's some sin I haven't forsaken. Maybe there's something that I'm harboring that that I just haven't given up yet. and, And we have this worry because maybe underlying that is this mentality of this transaction. I've got to pay the full price, or else I'm not going to get the prize. That's one extreme. And then there's the other extreme in which we're trying to game the system. What's the least I can do and still make it in that city? We never use those words. I don't think anyone would say that, but haven't you thought that before? Like, is God really going to not save me if I ate this? Chocolate bar, just this one time? Or, I don't know, hamburger? I, I, fill in the blank. I mean, I'm, I'm just off the cuff here. But you understand what I'm trying to say. There's this, How? what's the least I can do to get by mentality? And it also stems from this underlying issue where perhaps our motivation is simply to gain the prize. Is Christianity simply for the prize or the reward at the end of the road. I find that often my Christian experience is motivated by selfish motives. It's so sad, but it's true. How will I look if I did this? or maybe if I did this or said that or performed this or engaged in this activity, then somewhere down the road there's going to be some bigger mansion or some more recognition or reputation that I will get. But there's a problem with that. This idea that Christianity is for me to gain something, and maybe, and let me try to illustrate it to you this way. Of course, we already talked about the two extremes, but there's something even more dangerous, I think, particularly the way that we understand the last day events, what's going to happen at the end of time. Let me illustrate it to you in this, with this story. A good friend of mine shared this story with me. When he was a young boy, his father wanted him to learn how to jump off the high dive into a pool. And so this young boy, not knowing, you know, what it's like, he climbed up onto the high dive and his dad said, jump son, jump. So he jumps, belly flop. Ouch. For a little kid, I mean, that could be a shocking, traumatizing experience. First time ever, he's in pain, he's all red, he comes out, you know, he's sort of dazed, right? But the fa- his father realized, you know what, he needs to conquer this fear right now if he's ever going to, to master this thing. So he, he came up with a plan. He said, son, I want you to jump off the high dive again. No way, no way. Don't want to do that again. How about this? I'll make you a deal. You jump off the high dive. And I'll buy you an ice cream cone. you got to understand, in this family, ice cream is like a a once-a-year type of treat. So it's like major. This is a big deal. And so he's like, oh, ice cream cone. Okay. (laughs) So he climbs up again, and he jumps off a second time, and what do you suppose (laughs) happened? Belly flop. Comes up out of the water, and this time, he's just, you know, red as a beet. And the father, true to his word, bought him an ice cream cone, but he's like, Look, this kid has got to overcome this fear, or else this is going to cripple him. You know, he's got to be a manly boy. And so the <laughs> dad said, if you do it again, I'll buy you another ice cream cone. What do you think the kid said? It ain't worth it. <laughs> and therein lies. The problem if our Christianity is based on a motive of attaining a reward. Because what if one day life and the circumstances become so grim and so serious that the prize just doesn't seem to be worth it? And in fact, we read in the Bible that there will come a time in which there will be a time of what? a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. I'm not going to steal my own thunder because that's actually what we're going to be discussing tomorrow morning at Avon Hope. But the point I'm trying to make here is to try to get us to really dig deep in our own experience, our own soul, to ask ourselves, Why am I a Christian, truly, when I get to the rock bottom of this? Is it simply because I think that there's some prize that I'm willing to endure whatever I think the sacrifices might be to live as a Christian in order to attain someday in the future? Because it sure seems to me that there are going to come instances if we don't fall into either extreme of becoming you know, completely hopeless and guilt-ridden over our salvation on one hand, and then, you know, trying to uh, make the grace of, turn the grace of God into license for sin on the other, even if we avoid those extremes, it seems like there's still a danger that when the time of trouble hits, when it seems like there is no reward that's worth the pain we're going through, that it that may be our undoing. So I know I've, I've sort of waxed eloquent here, philosophical on you. I do want to look at the Bible now. And I want to look at two Bible characters with you to sort of, to try to get into their minds, to try to understand what made them tick. Why did they cho- choose to live as a believer in the living God? Of course, at least the one in the Old Testament. He wasn't a Christian, but you understand he was a believer of a living God. So we're going to look at perhaps the two most influential, two of the most influential people in the Bible, Moses in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament. Turn your Bibles first with me to Exodus chapter 32. With everything that we've said so far setting the backdrop, we want to try to get to the root of why Moses chose to follow the Lord. So Exodus chapter 32, we're going to begin reading in verse 9, but this is the story of the golden calf incident. They have come out of Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, they've been delivered by miracle after miracle. I mean, this is just mind-boggling that they would go so far to... to do precisely what God asked them not to do. I mean, just days after the law was recited to them on the mountain. This is just remarkable. And so I don't really think, I mean, God is justified in his, what he's about to say, I think. Look at what he says, verse 9, Exodus 32. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them. And I will make of thee, oh, and that I may consume them, excuse me, and I will make of thee a great nation. You see what God is offering here. He's saying, Moses, get out of my way. I've had it with these people. These people are rebellious, they're stubborn, they just don't care, they don't keep their word, they're just, they're not worth the trouble. Get get out of my way. I'm just going to rain fire down from heaven, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth, and I'll just start over with you. That's what God is saying. Now, if it were me, I'd be like, whatever you say, Lord. (laughs) Whatever you say. And, of course, secretly in my mind, of course, this is that selfish motive, right? That's sort of at the core of what we're discussing. I'd be thinking, that would sure make my job a lot easier. I mean, over a million people trying to lead them through the wilderness, uneducated, ignorant slaves. I mean, we have to teach them about basic hygiene and all this kind of stuff, and that's, that would have been my reaction. But what was Moses' reaction? Let's skip over, same chapter, verse 30. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go unto the Lord, perventure I may make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin. And in the King James Version of the Bible, immediately following, there's a dash. Is that in your Bible too? As far as I understand, in the King James Bible, this is the only place in the entire Bible that there's a dash. In other versions, I think there might be other places, but at least in this version. What does a dash represent? This is in Exodus chapter 32, verse 32. An interruption of thought. Because if you look at the next word, there's a break in the sentence. The sentence is not completed. So you can sort of get a picture of, of Moses pleading with the Lord, and he's saying, all oh, those people have sinned a great sin. If you will forgive their yet now, if thou will forgive their sin. And he pauses. And he's collecting his thoughts. And he's sort of thinking to himself, Do I really mean what I'm about to say? The only time that I find this in the King James Version of the Bible, because notice what he says next. And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. What book do you suppose he's talking about? The book of life. The book of life has names written in them. There are many other books in the Bible, but the book of life has names of God's professed people written in it. And what does Moses offer to do if God chooses to destroy this people? He says, blot my name out of that book. So what does that mean? What happens to an individual whose name gets blotted out of the Lamb's book of life? He dies. Not the first death. The second death. So do you see what Moses is doing here? Moses, he offers to die for the people. Not just say, I'll take a bullet for them, but then I'll go to heaven. Is, if they are lost, I will be lost with them. So if we were to ask Moses this question, Moses, why are you a Christian? I can tell you for sure, he will not say, I'm in it just for the reward. Can you see why? Because he's willing to sacrifice everything, and for who? All of these rebellious, stuff necked you know, ignorant people. Moses was not a follower, and, and, and I say Christian, but you understand what I mean. Not a Christian, but he was a believer of the living God for a different purpose, a deeper, a nobler, a grander purpose than simply to be saved oneself, than simply to gain a prize, be it some emotional satisfaction or a physical prize in him. And certainly it wasn't simply to avoid condemnation. Let's look at Paul. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Stop right there. That first first verse there sounded awfully redundant to me. I don't know about you. Look at what he says. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Ghost. You notice what he's saying here. He's making a point. He's emphasizing what he's about to say. He's saying, look, I am not pulling your leg. What I'm about to say may sound completely ludicrous, but I am assuring you that this is the gospel truth. I really mean this, from the bottom of my heart, with the Holy Spirit as my witness, I am not lying to you, I am telling you the truth, please believe me. You you see what he's doing here in verse 1. So what is he about to say? Verse 2, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What does it mean to be accursed from Christ? What's the net result to an individual who is accursed from Christ? Would it be fair to say it is equivalent of having your name blotted out of the book of life? And for whom was Paul willing to suffer this curse? He calls them my brethren my kinsmen according to the flesh. Verse 4 actually spells it out, the Israelites. The children of Israel, the very people who crucified Jesus, the people who were hunting for his life, the people in the end who actually would end up casting him into chains, for those people, Paul was willing to be accursed from Christ. So if I came to Paul and I said, why are you a follower of Jesus Christ? For sure, he would not say, so that I myself can be saved. That's not the ultimate purpose. That's not the only purpose. There's something deeper, something grander at work here in the lives of these two giants of faith. What was that? What was it that would lead these men to say, I would rather give up eternal salvation for these people's sake? What would lead a person to do that? I don't claim to have the answer, but I think I have a clue. That, I believe, is found In the Gospels. Let's look in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to be revisiting this story again through the course of our weekend together. But let's begin in verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then he saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will. Not as I will, but as thou wilt. Of course, he comes, he finds them sleeping. Verse 42, he went again a second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came again and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. In the garden, Christ suffered, not just in a hypothetical way like Paul and Moses did, with this very same question. There are people's lives at stake. There are sinners' destinies at stake. Am I willing to go through with laying down my life for these people? And I find this in the book of Desire of Ages that I, I think is so incredible. I, I feel like I just don't even fully, I, I'm just scratching the surface and understanding the depth of this. But Desire of Ages, page 753, paragraph 2, it says, "...the Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice." He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. So, the the, the struggle of Christ in the garden, as well as the cross, was not simply, am I willing to die and be raised in three days? That wasn't the struggle. Because... Haven't you ever thought, like, he's a, he himself predicted that in three days he will build up the temple. He's going to rise again. He even said those things. But when it came down to it, when the sin of the world was pressing on him, it literally, to Christ, looked as though his separation from the Father would be eternal. And that was the choice to be made would he still be willing to give up his life, his sinless, perfect life, for all eternity, for those who don't deserve it? Quite frankly, for those, most of those who won't ever accept it. And I praise the Lord that he chose to drink that cup. And it wasn't in a hypothetical sense like like Moses or Paul who, who can say, oh, that I might perish with thy people. They couldn't atone for anyone else's sin even if they wanted to. But for Jesus Christ, he actually carried it out. He actually sacrificed himself. And here I think we begin to see the glimmer, the glimpse of what drove Moses and Paul. Because they recognized, they knew, they had experienced, they had tasted the goodness of the Lord. They had seen the Lord face to face. They had held communion with God. They had that deep relationship with Him so they understood what Christ would do for them. And in turn, they were willing to do the same for others. If I can distill this message down into this punchline, Is simply the motivation for Christianity must not simply be for the gain. We're not just trying to gain something, but the purpose of Christianity is to become like someone. We're not, Christianity is not for us to gain something, but it's for us to become like someone. Even if there's no prize, would you still want to be like Jesus? Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Maybe we have a clearer picture of that now. Greater love hath no man than this, and isn't that truly... The goal of the Christian life? To exemplify the God of love who has given everything for us. Galatians 2, verse 20 tells us, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. What does that mean? It means that we lose the self interest. And like Moses and Paul, we grow in that ability to say with a genuine heart that I'd be willing to lay down my soul for the salvation of someone else. That is a tough calling. John the Baptist himself says, he must increase and I must decrease. And I think if... We come to this clearer revelation, realization of what it truly means to be a Christian. Perhaps some of these nagging issues in the Christian life that we sort of deal with may not become as significant of issues anymore. When we begin to wonder, oh, have I done enough to be saved? I mean, that's not the question, is it? Is have my life exemplified Jesus today. That's the issue. It's not so much the transaction, like, oh, what's the least I can do to be saved? I mean, that's not even that doesn't even remotely cross the minds of Moses or Paul, does it? I mean, these were people willing to give up their eternal life for sinners looking to take their lives. It, it just sort of looks petty, doesn't it? When we begin to realize Christianity, it's not about my own salvation anymore. It's not what I can gain, but what I can become. And the becoming part is, of course, the struggle of the daily experience. By beholding, we become changed. Moses saw Jesus face to face. Paul saw Jesus face to face. And the Lord has shown the light of the glory of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through His Word. And so why are we Christians today? Why are you a Christian? If there was no heaven, if there was no hell, if there was no prize, if there was no pot of gold, so to say, no mansions, no tree of life, would you still be a follower of Jesus today? What drives you? What is that motivation, the fuel in your tank that keeps you going? Is it just the end of the road where you expect to get a pat on the back, a crown on your head, and a mansion to kick up your feet in? Or are you driven because you have seen the Lord Jesus? And because of his matchless charms, you are drawn to him and you cannot help but say, Lord, make me like you. We're going to dig a little bit deeper into this subject through the course of this weekend. I hope this has stimulated your thinking as much as it has for me. I'm not saying this in any way as someone who has it figured out. I'm still on the same journey to learn more about myself and how to become more like my Lord as well. So I invite you to just bow your heads with me as we pause a moment to ask Him to guide us. Holy Father, this evening, Lord, I pray that you have helped to open our hearts, open our eyes to. Come to know ourselves just a little bit better. Maybe to accept and to recognize even the selfish motives sometimes that drive our Christian activities and Christian Christian life. Lord, we want to grow beyond that. Lord, we saw Moses, we saw Paul, we saw Jesus in the garden, and how far short we have fallen how far away from that ideal we truly are. Lord, I pray that while we still long to see your face in that new Jerusalem and to taste of the feast that you have prepared for us, Lord, may our commitment to you be founded on something far sounder, far more solid and, and more noble than just that. Lord, may we see Jesus and may we truly desire him and to become like him. And Lord, may you convert us from our wretched state, take out our stony heart, give us a heart of flesh that we might, in a real sense, have that as a desire of our heart. And so, Lord, as we continue together this Sabbath day, may you teach us Continue to lead us and truly make us like you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.